night rings through okay good sorry Garrett I was gonna have to send you home you know uh, so it's Garrett Potter he's up from Portland uh, he's gonna be competing in the individual poetry slam coming up uh, he's uh, been writing since 2004 performing since 2005 he's won the Portland poetry slam like three times or something, and a bunch of others. You can ask him about it later, but let's get to listening to his words, everybody. Garrett Potter! Good evening. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here in Bellingham. I have a cousin here, and a, and a second cousin who's three years old, this many, and he uh, he met us for for dinner at Casa Casa Que Pasa. It was delicious. The potato burrito, whatever the sauce is, I don't know about that sauce, but I've been on the toilet twice since eating it already. But my mouth regrets nothing. My memory only reaches to about the time that I was four, but for as long as I can remember, there's been this hunger. I remember playing Duck Hunt, you know, the Nintendo game using a gray and orange plastic gun, hunting pixelated images of ducks like I was starving, like success meant survival on some imaginary prairie. And on the same screen, I watched Captain Planet, the Smurfs, the Transformers, Inspector Gadget, and the Ninja Turtles. Since my favorite color was blue, Leonardo, the turtle with the swords and the attitude, was awesome. I wanted to be him. And my mother empowered me for at least three Halloweens to trick-or-treat as Leonardo alongside Dracula who possessed my big brother. My first happy memory is when I learned to ride a bicycle. Everything was riding on this to me. My mother was behind me in the camera, my father down below urging with his arms. And I did it. I rode. And I was so excited, not because of a cool brush of wind past my face, nor the weightless sensational momentum, but the thought that I had breached whatever barricaded me from my father, achieving a success so magnificent that I would earn his welcome. But cycling didn't accomplish this. I love both of my parents, but my mother was the one to capture good memories with cameras, and the courts decided I'd spend my most memorable years out of the picture. There are less of them. My first hope for romance was in kindergarten, an angel named Jill. 
My first girlfriend's name was Jennifer, one of many I passed notes to in the 90s when text messages were handwritten, electric only in metaphor. I tried to fit into cross colors and vans and airwalks and those silk button-ups from the Burlington Coat Factory. Spending a half an hour every morning on my side spike down the part, mullet party in the back with steps trimmed up the side, sealed beneath thick hairspray enamel, my haircut was a time capsule, capturing the best of North Louisiana prep, MC Hammer and Metallica's Jason Newstead. I was hungry for approval. And my first memory of pain is crashing that same bicycle. My father had built us this neon hot pink spray-painted wooden ramp for our birthday. Without experience, I assumed it only took speed, so I charged. Full terror, half balls, no knowledge of bunny hopping, all gravity and momentum. And when I hit that ramp, I did not catch air. I did catch the sidewalk's equal and opposite kiss. Shrieking, my mother whisked me inside, washed and iced my very affected face, sat us down on the couch, and she held me close. I remember how safe I felt, until she blamed my father for it. But it wasn't his fault. All he had done was give us this gift that maybe it would take pain to learn how to use, just as he had done when planting us into our mother and she birthed us into this life filled with excruciating gifts like middle school and genitals and free will and question marks, romance and poems. Like the first poem I remember was Hungry Mungry by Shel Silverstein from Where the Sidewalk Ends, about a boy who ate everything, the food, then the table, and then his neighbors, and then the universe, until nothing was left but his own teeth. I thought it was hilarious. It became my instant favorite. It took a lot longer to realize how much he and I had in common, how hungry I had been, and how so many failed attempts to satisfy taught me that maybe more is less. And maybe whole is more. And even our nuclear families can explode. So when I feel the hunger pains come again, I search for other memories to tide me over. Like, like when I was five, I would pile every stuffed animal and pillow I had into one corner of my room, climb my twin bed arrayed in the baby blue glory of a Care Bear onesie with the footsies, and stage dive into their ovation. Or when I was seven, I would usher my mother and brother to the amphitheater of our living room couch for a surprise. Discreetly inserting a cassette tape into our stereo, I demonstrated for them the world's most epic improvisational hip-hop dance ever performed in that living room to songs like Billie Jean, Black or White, You Can't Touch This, I Was Too Legit to Quit. I danced because I hadn't yet learned that people laugh at those they do not understand. I danced because I had not yet learned that untold multitudes of natural-born dancers are paralyzed in every celebratory occasion by a fear of not being cool. I danced because I was alive and still free with two legs that worked. So when life hands me each of its excruciating gifts, it's these memories of stuffed animal stage dives and improvisational dances that I search for. Moments I have no recollection of hunger. Because sometimes, sometimes we are full. Thank you guys. Again, it's good to be here. Last time I was here, uh, Nate, who is in the back row, good to see you, Nate, hosted a show for me and a, a buddy at the Whatcom Community College. That was got to be at least two years ago. Um, so it's good to be back here. Um, yeah, this poem I wrote. I was living in Southeast Portland, and I had uh, moved into an apartment. There was a three-bedroom apartment, but there were five of us guys living there, you know, trying to afford it. And uh, I was sleeping on the couch quite a bit. But sometimes the apartment would be empty, and I'd have it all to myself. Um, sometimes that was great. Other times I didn't like that, especially on Friday nights when I'd end up there alone. And uh, apartments, you know, the, the walls are 
are not exactly thick. So uh, sometimes I'd hear somebody's TV from the other side, and I'd be alone on a Friday night wondering, is what they're watching better than what I'm watching? What if I knocked on their door? What, what if I invited them to come watch with me? Or if I asked, hey, can I come over and watch what you're watching? Um, and uh, after enough of those type of frustrations, I, I needed to do something about it. Um, I ended up writing this poem as a part of that. I remember the words of Mr. Rogers. As children, we listened to this sweater-swapping, shoe-changing old man extend an unconditional invitation on the television. He asked, won't you be my neighbor? But this recent memory sank into an open wound. So I have to laugh at the irony of the golden rule in my life. It is written, love your neighbor as yourself. But I forget this. I fear my neighbors and am scared to share myself. All my ideas to initiate neighborly communication with these familiar strangers are paralyzed by pessimism. As I imagine a million things that you all might be thinking about me. But I cannot know what my neighbors are thinking unless I meet them and they tell me. And thus far I know little more than what I see between their front doors and our street. Like Mr. Across the Way, he constantly is calling for taxis when all he would ever have to do is ask me for a lift. I've been there. Wondering, how can I ask for help from someone I've offered so little of myself? And better yet, why doesn't our cross-the-way neighbor call our downstairs neighbor to take him places since he drives taxis for a living? To keep his family living here so near, I hear their conversations coming through the ventilation that we rarely exchange much face-to-face. We're so closely disconnected. And on Fridays, my roommates order pizza delivered by strangers when that's how our next-door neighbor makes his wages to rent the space just inside the next door with his wife, newborn boy, and little girl. We are so closely disconnected. All these close missed connections fail to set the broken bones in our closeted relational skeletons whose divides require stitching that doesn't have to come from family ties. We may find the family ties we lack laced into our neighbor's shoes. Those I rarely consider standing in, though I daily retrace their steps, we all walk on top the same concrete sidewalks, park our bikes and cars in the same lots, navigate around the same traffic signals, ugly carpet and plumbing. We just don't always think of each other as close. We reside only meters from the places our neighbors lay down to sleep and awake to take their first breath in the morning. I'm sure if I thought more about it, I'd realize how vulnerable I am behind my walls inside my boxed-in shelter place whenever I'm lounging and napping or showering and eyebrow-tweezing or grunting or farting or praying or dancing, actions I do naturally when alone. Not always so well in front of others. I'm not always publicizing my private life. Just mostly wishing I weren't the only one in it. Sometimes I wish I could be mutually woven into another's consideration. And I wonder why not Mr. and Mrs. Nextdoor? Why not them? Why instead will I commute all across our city just to talk honestly with someone when my insides long to share with someone near who knows and understands what I go through firsthand? I hate residing and hiding, fearing exposure, presuming to know what everyone around me might be thinking about me, but my apartment space sure is vacant. Surrounded by acquaintances. I hate knowing them as strangers, but I'd love to become friends in my personal space. It's too often vacant. Surrounded by acquaintances. And I am through with knowing strangers. I'm asking, won't you be my neighbor? How are you guys doing tonight? It's nice to be here. Uh, Mike McGee, who now lives in Bellingham, uh, was down in Portland last night 
and we get to share poems there. And now it's really great to be up here um, in his town now. So this is, uh, this is fun. Um, before I uh, published my book, I was a preschool teacher, um, and uh, I've been doing that for the last two years. Um, so I, during that time, I couldn't quite write a poem about it. It took a couple months. This summer I was on the road, and all of a sudden it just kind of dawned on me some of the interesting things I got to do at that job, and uh, I wrote this poem. Uh, it's called The Diapers I Change. I change diapers. I change the children's diapers. I lift them onto a cushioned table designed for said purpose and remove any clothing in the way until, behold, alas, the plastic Velcro padded body trash bag known as a diaper. I peel it back, each one a surprise, depending on limitless combined factors of diet, digestion, biology, and chemistry, like the magenta remains after beet day, or the aquamarine following artificially colored birthday cake frosting, and more, each unique in consistency, color, and stench. My job as a preschool teacher is to wipe the soil, we shall say, often out of the small, unmentionable places of these two- and three-year-old humans, holding my breath for as long as I possibly can to hurriedly deposit the wraiths like a ghostbuster deep into the odor-sealed storage containment known as a diaper pit. Then finally breathe a half-fresh, half-lingering breath of what I hope is mostly air, doing my best to distract my gag reflexes from launching the remaining contents standing by in my stomach. How both the child and I come out of this clean is no mere success, but a small miracle. For there, on the changing table, every moment a teaching opportunity, I inform the child of how poop is made. The good food goes in up top, the bad stuff comes out the bottom. Your bottom, my friend. And they respond with infectious giggles and clever inquiries like, Why can't I touch it? And you silly, Mr. Garrett. And I know multiple times per day I perpetuate this. I feed them. I supply these fecal factories the materials needed to keep producing more. And yet how could I not? How could I help myself with each curly or straight lock of their crown, each small tooth, round dimple-cheeked smile, each mirror image, daybreak, flashlight, eye gleam? How could I resist perpetuating their changes from bottles to blocks to balls to ballet to bikes and beyond? their changes. How could I forget that not so long ago I was helplessly vulnerable, dependent on some older, wiser, more able being. I, with the spark of life, without the knowledge of how to keep a flame alive. How could I forget each maternal sacrifice in the face of each and the very people I peed on? The fire of me, sacrificially cared for so long, how could I not tend the flame of theirs? For it was there on a changing table where countless children forgot I was an employee, forgot my name and called me dad. It was there where Weston told me that he loved me more than a monster truck shark, giving me the highest compliment in the known toddler universe, ushering me to tears not only as an instinctive olfactory response to the death in his diaper, but also from cardiac growing pains, my heart enlarging three sizes. Every moment a teaching opportunity, they waste none. As they lift me, transport me into present, into play, replacing intimacy issues from false cultural faux pas with unconditional vulnerability, replacing my filters like quickly caught false ideas with pure, open palms like those in which I will supply these young scholars the tools by which they make their next changes. I came here to love them, not the other way around. When I signed up for this job, I was warned that I would be changing them, but never could have known how much they would change me. One autumn in Portland, uh, seems like the cold seasons always remind me of times when I had someone to hold 
and it was not so cold. Um, and, uh, and when I'm without someone, I remember past seasons like that, and this poem uh, kind of tells that story. Um, the wheels turned beneath me on my autumn night commute, but inside they were twirling like autumn leaves. I was falling into memories of romance and past seasons. I had to get out. These thoughts spun out of control, so I used my eyes. Looking around for the first time that night, I noticed something beautiful was happening in a park right next to me. And lantern glow, autumn leaves were cascading like snowflakes. So I stopped. I jettisoned my vehicle. I ran and I dove, plunging myself into a free pile of leaves, allowing trapped laughter to escape. And for a moment, I heard nothing until only the swaying whisper breeze of some ancient orator exhaled for me its wisdom. And I listened. Trees don't hold on always. In autumn, they let their colors fall. Naked, they stand exposed through darkness and cold, while beneath they undergo root work, reaching deep for warmth. They breathe in and stretch out, exhale and exile, and prepare during winter bloom in spring. Hearing these words, I screamed, you don't understand. I've seen 25-year springs and doubt there's anything like that for me. Just because trees can make it naked doesn't mean I can. And because their limbs can bear it barren don't mean mine can. And because their roots stretch out and reach deep in cold, harsh seasons, how do I prepare to love if everyone keeps leaving? tried almost everything. I've squashed ripening friendships, moving too close unexpected. I've deprived seeds of relationship through endless deliberation, and I've held on to far too many maybes till they drain life from my limbs, forcing me to surrender to fall. Like the laden crowns of the grandfather oaks where I sat that night exhausted. And I prayed, God, I need something. If you dare not touch me, let the arms of these trees glitter their golden confetti to wrap me in a patchwork sewn by your breath to nurture me out of paralysis so that maybe before the 26th spring comes I can begin to imagine that something might be coming that if the trees can make it naked then maybe so can I and if their limbs can bear it barren then why can't mine and if their roots stretch out and reach deep in cold harsh seasons no matter what winter takes I will grow underneath I will breathe in and stretch out exhale and exile and prepare for love to bloom and my winter finally turns to spring. <laughs> this poem... Um, I feel like, because uh, I'm on a kind of short time, 30 minutes uh, here, um, normally I like to tell a little bit more stories and just uh, kind of talk a little bit, but um, I'm so glad to be here. I want to give you as many poems as I can. Um, I've always loved giraffes and uh, never really knew why. Um, never got to go to Africa, so I never got to meet one. I uh, went, to, went to the zoo, but they're all kind of already dead there a little bit. Um, so I, I found out, you know, that you could make friends with people who are farther away if you just send them a friend request on Facebook. So I, I sent a giraffe a friend request, and this is what he told me. Dear human, when it took you nearly a year to learn to walk, within only hours from exiting the womb, I could run. 
when I stood for the first time, my own mom kicked me over. Confused, I hobbled on the newborn legs and then she kicked me down again. And again, until I learned to move in this habitat inhabited with predators. Like you, who will prey on anything regardless of its size. I was born six feet and have stretched to 18 feet tall. I weigh 4,000 pounds and I'm clothed with these gold and black patches that are not just eye-catching. It's how I emit my body heat through these intricate spots. I can swap bugs off the back of my head using only my 18-inch tongue that is tough enough to chew past thorns while grazing acacias on the savanna and always, always ready to move. I even sleep while standing atop the continent of Africa. It's like you, I, I come from somewhere. But you people, you take your pictures and you file us in zoos, dissecting our dead to find parts you can use. And I wonder, is that all you think that I am? Something? A resource? This is not instinctive how you treat other species, and all too often your own calling one another human resources, using each other in the pursuit of more resources. But I am not a guest in your home. We are both visitors sharing this globe, sealed in by ozone, complete with its polar ice caps that are melting like popsicles and fickle haphazard stewardship of oil-spilling black mass transit greenhouse gases. Smog sends down acid rain. Can you taste test the fact that you are your own lab rats, polluting your own cabbage patch with nicotine smokestacks and pallet jacks of habits that won't rub off with alcohol or last calls to pharmacy to remedy the seeds you modify genetically, I know. We all want to live without pain. We're making our glaciers drip and our rivers drain and our soil dry and our forests fry and species die while underneath electric lights you humans are wasting away inside the coffin homes you build to keep you safe. Lock and key from your mistakes. Who are you kidding? If you were the ones created in the image of God, then God who will work on a cure. If you take us away, the acacia ants leave and elephants destroy the acacia trees. If you take us away, then ticks lose their host and tick birds struggle to find their food source. You're not only killing us, but ending the sustaining age of wild life. Why would you want to do that? It's so nice here. And maybe my brain only carries half the weight of yours, but my heart is two feet long and far stronger than any excuse of a muscle caged behind human ribs, ironically the same size as your fists. Why don't you try using it? Your head, those ears to hear the whispers and cries of earth's body language. We are singing you a song in the deepest muddy water blues that if you listen, you will find it is written in your skin. The verse tells the tragedy of it being consumed. The bridge chants the comedy that wildlife will continue. And the chorus tells a fairy tale about it all being renewed. Every creature plays its part, sending its own message. This has been just one of mine. Sincerely signed. Not yours. Truly. Giraffe. Thank you guys. Um, how am I doing on time? One, two, two, three. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. We'll call it two. Um, Great to be here, y'all. Um, it's been a good year. I, I, I got to uh, publish my book. Uh, Mike, could you be so kind as to share with me one of those copies of it that I might look at it and read something out of it? Thank you so much. I got to uh, publish this in June. Um, 
and then uh, go on the road and get to see some family. I don't get to see my family very much. They're all scattered across the U.S. I've got grandparents in New York and Florida. My father's in Nebraska. My mother's in Alabama, and my brother's in Louisiana. So without a full U.S. tour, I don't get to see anybody. Um, so it was, a great, it was a great year getting to share, getting to experience things. Um, this poem uh, I call, well, we'll just go into it. Um, but I'm going to ask you a question. You can answer it inside, but it's kind of more of a rhetorical question at first, and maybe at the end of the night you can talk to me about it, all right? Um, how was your day? Was it marvelous? Was it decent? Was it meh? Was it depressing or refreshing? Was it filled with boredom or trepidation or elation? Tell me how was your day. I mean it when I ask you. That's why I'm asking you. It's not just some sound, some phrase, some hmm. It has meaning like the story you are living does to me. Tell me, how was your day? What was it like? Was it sun rays or moonbeams? Was it dark clouds or cotton candy stars? Did it serve you a foreclosure notice on the door you had not realized was the lid to a present, not a promise to be taken for granted? Did it share with you its flowers? Did it buy you flowers? Did it leave a love letter under your windshield wiper for the tenth time? Did it stalk you, maybe creep you out a little? Okay, a lot. How was your day? Did it hold your five-year-old hand and walk you across the busy streets? Did it lovingly brush its hand on your cheek? Did it feed you a bountiful buffet of exotic fruits? Tell me about the mangoes. Or did it only serve to you how deprivation feels as even your own stomach acid is at your throat screaming out of loneliness? Did it share with you chocolate? Did you share some with the stomach acid? No, really, how, how was your day? Was it a blanket of friends? Their smiles like fireworks, like glass cylinder light bright bulbs coloring today pumpkin orange, or lemon meringue school bus yellow, or lipstick lounge dress red, or the purple of nursing home curtains, or at least an old lady's church hat? Or was it ceiling and walls? Only the windowless nothing of certain ceiling and walls. Tell me, how was your day? Did you awake on concrete, drenched in urine, maybe not your own? Did you awake on satin feathers and touch? Did you wake alone the worst way you could have asked for this morning? Did you wake on a used mattress impacted by the gravity that your body represents, pushing springs out of row, out of coil, out of use? Don't just tell me about the monotonous things you did to death. At least tell me how monotonous they were with passion. I want to know about your day. And if you're the only person I ask this question to and I get some sort of knee-jerk response, I might be likely to think, well, that's lame. I'm not going to be asking that for a while. Now, how was your day? Did you fall in love? Did you fall out, hit the ground, not running, running? Did you go for a jog today? Did you pray? Did you worship? Did you masturbate? Do you plan to? Did you curse? Were you cursed at? How did it feel? Did you create something? Did someone use you? Do you anticipate being used before the day is over? What would it take for you to say no to them and yes to yourself? Did you stand? Did anyone tell you that you can? Did anyone offer to help, hold, listen, love? Did anyone say, I love you? Who said it? How many times? I love you. I hate you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I love you. I love you. Who did you tell? Who asked you about your day? No, really, when I ask, I want to know. I mean, what if my day had been lifeless and the only life that I got was the life that you shared with me? Share with me your life. Tell me, how was your day? How do you want it to finish to go on forever or never more? And if your last glimpse is a 12.34 a.m. alarm clock glowing or open starlit skies or into a lover's eyes and let your heart and mind collaborate to whisper a silent thank you, thank you, God, gratitude. And if your last glimpse is only blurry, water on top of tear stains or as lonely as it began, only a white and blue Facebook message box, if it's to me that you are typing, Know that I would like to ask, to share, to know, how was your day? Ask me back. Maybe I'll be there too. No longer alone. Say thank you for asking. I had a great day. And you made it so.
I'll uh, share one last poem. Um, this poem, somebody had asked me to write a piece about my time in Portland. Uh, I've been living in Portland for about five years now. Uh, it's my ninth state to live in. Um, moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, lived with six different men and seven different women growing up um, all over the country. And, uh, and then after graduating college, I chose to move to Oregon. Um, been there five years. Somebody asked me to write about the time my life, that kind of transformational process. And uh, it was really hard to try to take five years and put it into a three-minute poem. Um, I went away for a writing retreat. And during that time, uh, I had three weeks alone in Montana, which was a really, really amazing gift. Uh, my boss gave me that time off of work. My aunt invited me to come stay at her place. And during that time, the first week, I did absolutely nothing. I, I turned off everything electric. I had no communication with the outside world, and I just spent an entire week alone uh, with no media of any sort. By the second week, uh, I'd slowed my pace a lot and kind of detoxed and was able to start clearing out thoughts. And in the process of trying to begin to write this poem, I wrote something else. Um, and I'll read you a small excerpt out of the book as an intro. Um, it's the very last poem in the book. And again, again guys, thank you for your time. I'm, I'm so very glad to be here tonight. My girlfriend at the time had mentioned that almost all of my poems talk about intimacy. I realized she was right. So I decided to face it head on, to excavate until I reached the core of my personal human motivation. For the longest time when asked what my favorite word is, I answered, concilium. A close friend asked me what it meant, and I told him it is the root of reconciliation, the state of being before having to reconcile or after reconciling, the state of being then, there, that's my favorite word. He liked it so much that he looked it up. Then, like the Spaniard swordsman Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, he said to me, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Inconceivable! I could no longer unveil my unique treasured favorite word answer. Accepting my error, rather than dismissing Miriam Webster and the statesman of our dialect, I found the next best word in this language to express what is most important to me. My greatest desire, the focus of my meditation, the core of my motivation, my aim, the beginning and the end of my search. I'll call this poem Intimacy Period. When I reach my end, short on time and breath, only enough strength to tell you one final phrase. I'd like to know it before I have to. I only wanted intimacy. Sounds good, that's nine syllables, 19 letters, three spaces, one period. No, backspace. Around one year of age, I first learned to speak. My, my brain signaled nervous system stimulating my heart to send oxygen-filled blood through lungs, exhaling carbon dioxide past my vocal cords, creating volume traveling through nasal passages and mouth, maneuvering my jaw, lips, tongue, and cheeks to enunciate sounds with meaning. Words. When I murmured my first pronoun, Mama, it was a word almost synonymous with intimacy. With a single expression, I was able to achieve most any necessary end. Almost, but not quite enough, so I, like you, was forced to acquire more of these words, so vitally narrowing the scope of my emotions and the messages, like up, or carry me, or hold me. Hold me, that one. Two syllables, six letters, one space, one exclamation, requiring use of breath of the back roof of mouth and lower down into rounded cheeks and diaphragm exhalation, quick touch of tongue to roof, then gums above front teeth with a momentary pause, closing mouth, sealing lips, exhaling air past vocal cords, 
having through nasal passages before thrusting open lips and forward motion, transferring friction to upper throat, lowering down bottom teeth, all to utter, hold me. So complex, and yet so much easier understood than all my wordless cries before I cried for intimacy. Each of us cries differently, releasing our tears, mucus, saliva, and sound in vocal, facial, and bodily eruptions. It's a response to a mind overloaded. First time I felt pain, I cried. Sensed hunger, I cried. Felt lonely, I cried. Someone told me no, and I knew what they meant, and I cried. Someone, my brother, Kung Fu kicked me so hard in the still-forming testicles, and I cried. A girl named Jennifer expressed her lack of romantic sentiments toward me, and I cried. I took the leap from all I thought I knew into the cloud of unknowing to express faith in a god, and I cried. I saw Oregon in the springtime with my own eyes. I cried. My friend Greg died. I cried. I studied ancient religious history and I told God I could no longer believe or practice the common forms of religion. And I cried. I had sex for the first time with one person, uncertain if I was in love, sharing innumerable expressions of intimacy. And I cried. And then I admitted and apologized for my lack of chivalry. And I cried. And sometimes I still choose to pray to a God whose story of sacrificial love I do not know existed in history. And I cry. And it's possible that here now, while recounting these overwhelming moments, I might cry. I I cry for intimacy. I, I cry without it. I cry overwhelmed and intimacy is my cry. But if I only get to tell you one thing before I go, I want intimacy. No, I have intimacy. No, love is what I have. No, love is what I need. No, no, here I am, love me. No. I love you. There. It's three syllables, eight letters spaces and all I could ever need to tell you. Period. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. That was Garrett Potter, everybody. Thanks, Garrett. And now we're going to retire for a short break.